Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and this is the inaugural episode of season three. So, before I get into the interview uh, for this first episode, I wanted to start with some business at the top. So, up until now, Field Notes has released episodes in seasons, but starting now, uh, Field Notes will become a continuous podcast and episodes will be released monthly, once a month. And if you are interested in hearing more episodes, you can now support Field Notes on Patreon, and the website for that is patreon.com slash fieldnotespodcast, and I'll link it in the show notes as well. Um, so this is an effort to make the podcast more sustainable and also to start uh, being able to pay for transcripts to be produced with the audio audio episodes. So instead of the transcripts coming out later, ideally, uh, I would like to fund transcripts to be produced in time with the audio episodes so that they can be accessible to people who either don't want to listen to the audio or can't listen to the audio. So, so yeah, so that's one of the main goals for the Patreon. And also, uh, I'm really excited to announce that this third season, so season three, will be completely devoted to insider researchers. And insider researcher is a term that Kairu Nisa of episode five back in season one taught me. And what I mean by that is basically people who are linguists, but they are working in their own communities and on their own languages. And this first episode today with Nancy C. Kula, uh, she is a speaker, a native speaker of Bemba. And she'll be talking a bit about how, while she is an insider researcher, this identity or this positionality of insiderness can actually be quite fluid. So she is from the Copper Belt province uh, in Zambia, but she actually works with another community quite often in the northern province. So it's not where she grew up. And she talks a bit about how there are advantages and disadvantages and you know, challenges that come with that. Um, so, so yeah, I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Before we get to the interview, I just want to share Nancy's bio. Professor Nancy Kula studied phonology for her PhD at the University of Leiden. She has an MA in linguistics from SOAS University of London and a BA in education with African languages and linguistics from the University of Zambia. Following her PhD, she held a postdoctoral position in Leiden and at SOAS for three years and now works at the University of Essex since 2007. She has worked on many topics in phonology, including tone and intonation, and theoretically works on element theory. She is also interested in language policy as it applies to education in multilingual contexts and is currently running a project covering Botswana. Tanzania, and Zambia. She has published in international linguistics journals and has edited a number of volumes and serves on international editorial boards. 
All right. Well, thank you, Nancy, so much for coming to Field Notes today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to it. Oh, no, of course. Yeah, definitely. So to start, can you share with us how you first got into linguistics? So I went to do my undergraduate studies at the University of Zambia, and I went to do a Bachelor of Arts in Education, and I wanted to do it with languages, but there wasn't really like a linguistics degree. And so I was going to do English. And the other thing I was interested in doing was maths as well, because it was education. I was thinking of something that I could, you know, use to sort of be able to teach. But one of the professors in the African Languages and Linguistics Department, Professor Chanda, sort of uh, said to me that I should consider doing languages and linguistics. And there was these relatively newly introduced courses on languages and linguistics. And the code was LAL and everybody sort of called it LAL. And so I was a bit like, uh, so it's a bit like, oh, you should consider doing Lao. And I was a bit like, Lao, but what is this Lao? And, and you know what, how, what is it going to be useful for me? Especially when you're thinking of, I'm going to leave here, I want to teach. And how am I going to teach this, you know, this Lao? So it was a bit like, oh, you should try it, try it for a week and see what you think. So then I tried it and I thought it was really, it was really interesting because the, the modules that were on this Lao languages and linguistics were fairly small. So it was sort of like maybe there was 12, I think there was 13 of us and that made it up to the third year cohort. And it was different people who spoke different languages and the approach of teaching was sort of a comparative approach. So in particular in phonology, which is I think why I got interested in that, was that the sort of professor would sort of talk about particular processes in sort of one language and then make a comparison um, with all of the different languages. So each of us had to sort of say... How does it work for you in your language? And it was just kind of really nice. And to immediately see this variation across the different languages was for me something which was very, very interesting. So then after that, with all of these different, you know, sound things, I was totally hooked. So that was during your undergrad, yeah. right? Yeah. In Zambia. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So from the start, you were yeah. straight linguistics. Exactly. Yeah. Once I, once I sort of started there, then I thought it was, yeah, it was great. I sort of did linguistics throughout my uh, undergraduate studies and then after that it was it was really fairly clear that I thought this is what I was going to do so then afterwards mm-hmm. I was looking for possible places to to do an MA and then thought of SOAS as sort of being the place where everyone talks about doing African languages so I thought it would be a great place to go to so I was very sort of lucky to get a scholarship from the British Council to go and do my MA and I did my MA there which was really it was I mean it was it was fantastic it was just really great to sort of be in a new environment different people and again, it was almost as if it was my my scope of looking at languages then was all of these Zambian languages, all of the African languages. Um, and then sort of going to SOAS and having a similar kind of cohort group. I think maybe we were eight or ten or something. But then looking at many different languages. So it's a little bit like you've got the basis. And I looked at all different Bantu languages. But then in my cohort, there was somebody doing Korean, somebody doing Japanese, somebody else doing Greek. So it was, again, seeing a similar kind of thing and now kind of you know, beginning to have the understanding that actually it wasn't only about those different African languages that I looked at, it was also all of these different other languages. So then the the whole sort of concept and idea of universal grammar and, you know, maybe there are similar patterns we are looking at really sort of came came home to me during during the MA. And then after the MA, I then went to Leiden to do my PhD. Of course, at that time, I was really already sort of engrossed in deciding to do linguistics at that point. And was it phonology from the start that you were like, that's what I'm into? Or did you like bounce around between areas? Not so much, really. It's interesting. I think right from my undergraduate studies, I was I was more interested in, in, in phonology. And again, yeah. it's really, it just, I, I mean, it just turned out to be that I, 
I thought the lecturers who were teaching phonology just seemed to be a little bit more fun <laughs> and it seemed to just, yeah, it just seemed to work better for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, in a way I was doing quite formal phonology with, you know, different kind of representational stuff. But nevertheless, I sort of didn't quite get into into sort of syntax and sort of to sort of appreciate that and also all of these trees and stuff. So it wasn't, I do some interface stuff, but essentially I felt like the more the sort of soundy stuff was always the thing that I I could see I, I sort of had an interest in this. Yeah. And also in particular because there's a very nice interface between phonological and morphological stuff. So mm-hmm. I thought there was a nice, nice area in which to, to work in, which was quite broad. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you share... A little bit about your experience. I feel like we could do a whole episode on this, but um, I've been asking people more about like their positionality in their field and like, who Mm -hmm. are they and how does that relate to, you know, the communities they're working with and the field that they're working in. So can we talk a bit about uh, your experience working as an insider researcher and like, do you feel like you're always an insider? Are you an outsider in other ways? Can you share on that a bit? Yeah, it's it's really an interesting question because it's 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 true. Positionality is certainly not something that sort of stays static or which you can look at in, in the same way all the time. Mm-hmm. So I work mainly in northern Zambia where Bemba is spoken. So Bemba is my native language and I sort of work in this area where Bemba is spoken. But I have grown up in a different area in the Copper Belt province, uh, which is another area where, you know, Bemba is currently spoken now. People moved from the north to the sort of central area where there was copper uh, copper mining and sort of lived and worked there. So on the one hand, I'm an insider because clearly I'm a Zambian person. I'm going to this community. There's nothing surprising about most of the things that I'm going to see. But on the other hand, I don't live in this community. I just sort of don't sort of don't even know what the communities of uh, practice are really. And so there are some things which are, which you stand out as being quite different because you're coming from a different environment. And I think there's also a really interesting feeling about what is the classic linguist thing of what is the pure language where mm. where is is the correct bemba spoken so so for most of the people that i meet in the north it's the feeling of oh you come from the copper belt or oh, it's these town people they speak mm. you know uh, you know they don't speak the correct bemba um so sometimes it's uh i, I think most times actually it's worked to my advantage at my advantage because when i I sort of contrast the differences between when I'm doing data collection in the Copper Belt province, where I come from, and in the northern province. It's the same language, but when I'm in the northern province, there's more of, I'm asking these questions, or oh, you couldn't possibly know. So oh, therefore, okay. like you know, because you don't you. know, so therefore, yeah, exactly. You, you need to sort of improve your language and your culture. <laughs> You've lost all of this. So, so let us initiate you. <laughs> you back into this into the sort of good ways yeah so that's the you know you get and also you, you can ask questions repeatedly and they sort of say well yeah like i told you yesterday and it's kind of fine whereas in the in in the copper belt like where i come from like i if i talk to you know groups of ladies that i talk to like my mom's friends it's a bit like uh what what happened to you how come you've lost your language how come mm-hmm. you don't know these things and I think like, well, I mean, of course, I kind of I know from my perspective, but I would like to sort of have a second, you know, a second opinion from somebody else. Yeah. So I think there's um, and also, but even then, because I don't I don't live in Zambia at the current time, I'm I'm living a, away in the UK. So there's also there's also on the one hand, you're an insider, but then you're also a bit of an outsider because you're not living in this community on a day to day in in both in both contexts. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it sometimes it works well and sometimes it's. Yeah, it it can have its own challenges sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. 
I mean, do you want to talk a bit about the challenges now or we can come back to it later? So, you know, some of the challenges are a little bit too to sort of do with expectations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes I think people are trying to be helpful um, and they're sort of saying, well, you're, you're going on. I think at, at one point, so in Bemba, there are four different past tense and I was really interested and it looks like one of them is being lost and I was really interested in knowing when, so of course, I think for somebody who's interested in language, it seems like it's a, it's a very structural thing to want to know how come there's this third past tense which is being lost, what's kind of going on there. So I was probing a lot of questions about this and members of the communities were a bit like, well, this is really interesting, but what you should really be looking at is this and this and that, or even, but also really sometimes really useful things like, um, this is very good that you're doing this. It would really be wonderful for us to get teaching materials for teaching Bemba because we don't have enough materials. Everything that we have is really old things. So maybe with some of the stuff that you're doing, it would be nice for um, teaching materials. Again, it's also, it's something that I actually would really like to do. But of course, sometimes it's also, what's your project? What have you, you know, promised that your funders are going to do? You have planned a sort of very, maybe linguistic questions, which it's not clear whether there's a time to then develop teaching materials. Mm -hmm. And you don't really want to say no, but then again, you don't really, you don't want to make, you know, fake promises. But it's also, it seems a little bit like, like, you know, maybe the community is losing out a little bit because you're just sort of going for the questions that you have. So, so those things I feel, I feel it's challenging also from the point of view of um, how comfortable you feel about what, what's your research doing? What kind of image are you, are you portraying or what kind of contribution or non-contribution are you making in the societies that you're, that you're sort of working in? So that I feel is a, it's a bit, uh, I find a bit challenging many times. Mm-hmm. How do you manage that? Do you just, just try to do everything you can, like kind of within reason even if it means that you're doing things outside of what you've promised the funder, just because you also want to make sure that the community gets something that's more useful to them, or yeah. um, maybe do you think the answer is like the funders need to actually be more open to things that are what the community members want? I think, yeah, no, no, I think it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both. And I, I think certainly once you're there for things that you can do, I do try very hard when I'm there. I think the last time I was there, I was with, I met with a a teacher who t- taught in a secondary school and he was also kind of lamenting not having enough materials and, and how can we sort of, sort of improve the situation. So we had a very nice, we decided to sort of have a session where we just brainstormed about what can you do in terms of getting materials. And I think probably now because of, of COVID things, there's much more use of internet. And, and so I was sort of saying to him, like, you know, sometimes they're sort of, you can try to get materials in terms of like, even people doing like, I don't know, tweets in local languages, mm-hmm. like that kind of material could also be materials that you could use to show actually a language that's alive, that is sort of being used today. So I think it's just these, you know, little bits of, you know, maybe stay a bit longer in the field to sort of have conversations with people about things that matter to them. And I think more and more I'm, I'm thinking it would be nice to sort of collect all of that information to try and feed it into, into future projects that you're sort of doing. Because many times, um, I think in the UK, we're having more and more that your projects have to have some kind of impact. So then maybe those are the kinds of things that you could try to bring to bear. But of course, the problem is usually that the impact that funding bodies are asking you to to have has to be in relation to the question that you had. So you had this question, which was about the past tense. Can you show us what impact it can have? But clearly, it's not so clear what the impact of that would be. Whereas just because I'm working on this language... Maybe the impact is developing some kind of, you know, teaching materials for the for the community. Yeah. So I think both ways, really, that it would be good 
that we try to sort of, yeah, bring this information back to funders and try to sort of make it part of applications that we write that they could be thinking of the community and what would be beneficial to them in some way. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction that what the communities want might not necessarily be tied at all to your research questions. You know, like we, I spoke to another linguist, um, Pius Akumbu, and he was saying, as a community member, he knows what the community wants and what they don't want is dictionaries or grammars or, you know, things like this. Like they, they're not yeah, interested yeah, in yeah. those things, but they would love better roads. Yes, exactly. Actually, also bigger things. Yeah. So sometimes it's also when I'm in the North, people sort of say, oh, when you go back to Lusaka, because in Lusaka, that's where the government is, that's where the parliament is. Talk to these people. We need. I mean, even things that they need in schools is like big things where you're really thinking like, wow, you need a new classroom. I'm not going to be yeah. able to provide you with a with a sort of new classroom mm-hmm. or, you know, we need we need more teachers to come here. Why don't people come here and teach here? Why don't you come and teach here? So it's really there. There they are sort of bigger questions. And people say, when you go back to Lusaka, tell those people in Lusaka that we need this and this and that. And of course, yeah, yeah, you, you we just got absolutely no power or control in terms of, you know, influencing what governments might say or something like that. Yeah, it's a really it's a really complicated issue and I I mean not something that the linguists can solve alone, but we need to at least start talking mm-hmm. about it and thinking about like okay, what can we what are the options? <laughs> what is possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Can we talk a little bit more about the language context of Bemba uh, for mm-hmm. listeners who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, so um, like I was saying, the the sort of main or the origins of where Bemba is spoken is in northern Zambia. At least that's where people think the original inhabitants were. And there was sort of a shift of people moving from the north towards the central area where there was copper mining. But I think that's like in the, you know, in the 40s, 50s, people moved to sort of the, the, the central area. And now there is a group, a big group of people who speak Bemba in the in the central province um, when you're in the in the northern province, there's two areas where Bembas are spoken, two main dialects uh, also which are distinctive. So there's Luapula Bemba and then there's northern province Bemba. But really, in reality, I'm, I'm really quite excited because I'll be starting very soon a new project on dialectology um, in Bemba, looking at uh, phonology and uh, syntax with a colleague, uh, Hannah Gibson at uh, Essex. Oh, Hannah Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> so, we, yeah, we just got this, this, this funding. I listened to your podcast with her. It was brilliant. Oh my gosh, yeah. I love Hannah Gibson. She is so fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Okay. Sorry, exactly. No, 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 no. So full of positive energy. Yay, Hannah Gibson. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very brilliant. So we've got this new project together where we are going to be looking at uh, because she's interested in 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 variation and language change. So we are going to be looking at uh, different dialects of Bemba. And I, I think they're actually about you know fifteen different dialects, but no one ever really does very much of dialectal work. Um, in Bantu. So we thought it would really be nice to sort of look at what's going on in the in the different dialects. And I think part of the reason why there isn't so much dialectal work is because there's a lot of comparison of different Bantu languages which are similar and also similar sometimes to a point of where it may well look like they're different languages, but it may look like different dialects. So then the comparison is always on different Bantu languages. So now we thought it might be nice to look at a language and look at the variation which is inside all of all of those languages. And we want to make a comparison of those dialects which are in the north and those which are in the in the central area. So one thing about um, the central area, maybe what that I could add is that there is there's a lot of discussion as to whether is this is this uh, like just like a pigeon? Is it like really really a language? So there's a 
the one of the sort of very uh, esteemed Zambian linguists, Mubanga Kashoki, uh, has written a book which is on town bemba. And the, uh, the idea is that there is, or actually it is true, that there was on the Copper Belt province language which was used on the mines, which was a lot of Bemba predominantly, but various different other languages. Because when people came to do mining, um, there's copper mining in, in the Copper Belt, they came from all different areas. So it was a bit of a mix of different languages. I think there was even, you know, some Gujarati in there as well. So it was kind of very mixed. Wow. But I think it was a bit of a transitory thing that, you know, people spoke this and it was mainly on the mining. And I think mining has changed with respect to the way it was then. So I'm not quite sure how much of this town Bemba there is. And I, I, of course, there is some because I think there's work, anthropological work of town Bemba or urban Bemba that is spoken mainly like around, you know, railway stations or bus stops or something like that. So there's this, I have this ongoing yeah, battle kind of trying to understand, you know, this, this, so, so I come from the Copper Belt province and there's this thing which is called town Bemba, but my parents are, or are both, uh, you know, native Bemba speakers who came from the north and they moved to the central province, to, to the, to the central province in Indola, but they didn't work in the mine at all. They just came to settle here because there were many more opportunities. There were many more jobs because of all of the mining that was kind of going on. And I just speak whatever it is that they pass down to me. And it's not necessarily anything to do with the mine. And it's not a mixed language. It is just actually very standard two, you know, uh, speakers of two different dialects coming together. So it's, it's, I feel as if there's a little space that needs to be carved out for these copper built Bemba speakers who are not speaking this town, you know, this town Bemba, this slang or this... Yeah you know, with transitory stuff that's kind of going on. But just, you know, you just, you actually, I, I sort of feel like many times, like, like what someone like me would speak, it's not so different from the North, but of course you're so far away from a particular area. Mm -hmm. And there are many more languages in the, in the Copper Belt province. So in Copper Belt province, Bemba is surrounded by many other languages. So there's clearly some other, some influence from other languages. Whereas in the North, Bemba is surrounded by many other Bemba dialects. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a question about whether is all of the Bemba that is spoken in the Copper Belt uh, this slang Bemba or is it something slightly different? Wow, that's really interesting. So did people from the north come in, kind of come in waves? I'm just wondering yeah. if there's like kind of like you're, you're kind of like a second generation uh, northern Bemba person in the town but is that like unusual are there people who have grown up in the town for like more many more generations so then their bemba is like more of this like town bemba but you're like kind of a northern bemba heritage <laughs> it's really I, I yeah i mean these are the really really interesting questions that it would be nice to to probe and understand a little bit i'm not i'm not even quite sure that i i can understand that i i think they they probably were different waves of people that that came that i think the the very early, the people who came really the earliest to the Copper Belt were people who really came to work on the mines. Okay. And they didn't really settle. I think they worked on the mines. Like, you know, I don't know if they work like, you know, you work for months and then you go back home to the north, spend a bit of time, then come back to the Copper Belt province. But then that may have been, I think it's, I think that the idea is that maybe it's around from the 20s, 30s, people just came like to work on the mines. And probably that flux went on. But later on, I think in at the time that my parents were coming in maybe the mid 60s, this was people just coming to sort of work in, in a place which has now become a city and they were not going back and forth. They just came and they settled there and, and, and they stayed there. 
And I think, okay, of course we can assume that the lang- their language must have changed or has changed just from the fact that you've been away from a particular place in a long time. But of course it's changed in a sort of different way in contrast to if you were in this yeah. area of high multilingualism in this sort of like mining context. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it sounds like even classifying speakers and what yeah. Bemba are they speaking is going to be like really interesting for this project. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, just to find out even how how do you do this? And then of course there's also the younger younger generation. So so I I think of my my nephews and and nieces who are indeed again removed away from that, and they're. I mean, they are speaking a lot of English. Um, you know, many times you sort of speak to them in Bemba, but then they, they would respond. They clearly understand. And they, by default, are usually many times sort of answering back to you in English. So it's really a bit a bit like when they would speak Bemba, what is their Bemba like? And it would be, I mean, there aren't any studies even to make a comparison between these sort of different generations, three generations of people who are in the Copper Belt province and what kind of Bemba that they, that they speak and how that might differ from changes that might also be going on in the north because even in the north there presumably are changes going on as well so it'd be interesting to see whether there's any convergence in terms of young speakers who are in the copper belt and young speakers who are who are in the north yeah yeah oh so interesting can we can we talk a little bit about bemba intonation this is something i have no idea about (laughs) phonology yeah 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 (laughs) so i'm really interested to hear like more about this and your your work on it so far. Yeah. So so most of my research focuses on on prosody in a sort of very broad sense. I'm interested in phonology, I'm interested in tone, I'm interested in intonation, and that connects very much with why I'm interested in the phonology syntax interface because I'm interested in trying to see how in what way can phonology influence syntax or in terms of how can it influence our processing in some sense. So with intonation in tone languages it's really fascinating because of course with tone languages, you've got tone. So you've got tone on each vowel in a particular sentence. And I think the conclusion, usually, I think, you know, previously it was felt like, would there be intonation which is different from the sum of the tones, so to speak? So is intonation just the equivalent of, you've got your tones, high, low, high, low, and in Bantu, or at least, you know, in Bemba, it's two tones, high and low, and it's usually sort of high, low is kind of a, a default tone. So you've got particular vowels which are going to be high and some which are going to be low. And then if you have that on each vowel, then should you just join those dots? And that kind of gives you what the intonational curve is going to be. But it kind of turns out to be that that's, that's, that's not quite at all how it works. So there is also intonation, which kind of seems to sit on top of all of these individual tones. So of course, with tone, usually we are looking at it in terms of like, words um, which are being contrasted by tone or grammatical marking, uh, which is using tone. Whereas with intonation, we are looking at, at bigger domains. So one of the questions that I, that's, you know, a couple of questions that I was studying in terms of intonation in Bemba was to see, for example, how are questions formed, which is something which is a very, you know, classic thing to study when you study intonation. Oh, okay. So like, like in English with a right exactly. tone at the end when you're asking a question. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so then of course, then, I mean, you find this in English, you find this in many, many languages where it kind of goes up when you're asking a question. Mm-hmm. But I was struck very much when I was sort of looking at intonation in Bemba that, oh, you ask a question and it actually goes down. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go up. So it's a little bit like, oh, oh, that's really, it's counter expectation. You think that you're, you know, you're asking, uh, you're asking a question and it should go up, but it's kind of 
it kind of goes down. So the intonational effect seems to be when you ask a question that you sort of raise raise the the pitch of the sentence, but in terms of the intonational curve. So when you see see it, you go down. So somewhere at the start, you really raise your intonation, and then you kind of kind of go down. And that's also connected very interestingly to how you mark focus. So again, in English, if you were going to say you want to emphasize the person that that came, John came, you would say John came, or John is the one who came. So then your emphasis um, is placed on John. And what you see, at least in Bemba, is that you don't place emphasis on the actual item that you're sort of you want to focus, but on the on something which is which is before it. So if you want to say something like, "I bought biscuits," and biscuits is the thing that's supposed to be high, it's almost as if you're saying, "I bought biscuits." Oh, wow, but biscuits is, is, is the emphasis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a little bit like the thing that you want to focus is doesn't have this raised intonation, but the intonation is before. And, and of course, I mean, it's a bit weird, but if you think about it in terms of processing, it's just a cue that's mm-hmm. telling you that I'm raising now because something important is coming. Yeah. And then the thing that's important is, is biscuits and I don't have to do anything about it as long as I raised somewhere. Yeah. So it's really, it's really, yeah, it's really interesting because it kind of begins to question the basic assumptions that one has about what should intonation be? You think it's just like it's going to work the same across different languages. And then we see in some very areas which are sort of like the classic examples that you get. You open an intonation textbook. You want to explain it to an undergraduate student. You say, oh, intonation is like in English. You always go up when you have, want to ask a question. And then that's the most basic assumption is like you look at a couple of other languages and it's quite quite different. So I'm really I'm interested in doing doing more stuff. I, again, also with the dialectology stuff, I'm really interested in seeing how does that vary with respect to to different dialects do they is one of the things for example even between the copper belt and the north that people can hear sometimes words are yes they're lexical items which are different but could we also be able to tell a person who's speaking whether they happen to be from the north or from the copper belt because of the way that their mm. their intonation is so i'm really really interested and excited to sort of do this work on you know variation of, yeah. of intonation in in bantu languages that is so interesting. I wonder how language learners deal with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, that's yeah. so interesting. Did you, as a native speaker, is this something that you al- always knew that it was cool in Bemba because you spoke other languages? Or was it not until later you were like, actually, like that's really cool? Yes. No, no. It was something that I didn't even notice. Uh-huh. I, mean, I, I mean, that's why this whole, like, you know, being a native speaker of a language, you just don't even pay any attention to it. And and I didn't even, didn't kind of realize it. So I sort of collected all of this data when I was doing sort of a systematic study to see, okay, let me sort of, you know, measure what's happening in declarative sentences, in contrast to questions, in contrast to focus constructions. Then I sort of said, this is absolutely consistent. That is always, it's sort of always different. And of course, once you sort of like, after seeing it, then I think like, yes, actually, I sort of, I sort of hear this and it, it seems... I notice it a little bit more that there is like this fall that you get at the end of sentences seems to apply, you know, across the board, different kinds of sentences. There's always this kind of final lowering and it's just, it's different in slightly different contexts, but essentially you always kind of go, you know, kind of go down at the end. It always seems, and and sometimes now when you listen to it, it always seems like, you know, a question is supposed to be something which sounds like, you know, somebody's getting excited about something. Yeah. And it always just sounds a little bit like it's just like, mm, just kind of matter of fact, kind of like a way, which is really a little bit like, uh, you know, surprising. But no, I didn't, 
I didn't have a, a feeling. There, there are certain things like more segment stuff where like maybe sound processes, which I sort of think like, okay, yeah, we've got this this burr, which is not a burr because it's a burr, which is softer, blah. And I know that people have difficulty in sort of producing this voice by label fricative. It's a little bit like what you have in Spanish as well. So, so things like that you notice immediately because you sort of know that, oh, people fail to sort of say this. But the intonation stuff, even for me as a native speaker, it is really like analyzing the data that made me realize like, oh, there are all of these other cool different things going on um, in Bemba. Oh, that's so amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how fieldwork can be more collaborative or how, based on your own experiences, your work has been collaborative? Yeah, that's a really, really, you know, interesting question. So I have, I guess, on two levels. So I've, I've worked with colleagues at the University of Zambia in terms of, you know, actual linguists who we are going to go into, into sort of collecting data together. So I had a project previously where... I was going to work in an area, not in the Bemba area, but in the Western province where Lozi is spoken. And I don't really speak, you know, I, I mean, I can say hello and how are you and can I have some fish, <laughs> which is really important because it's a, it's a fishing area and they have gorgeous fish there. So I can sort of say some basic things. But, but when we were going to do fieldwork in that area, it was really crucial that I had this two collaborators from the University of Zambia and also an MA student. And it was really, really amazing to have a sort of an MA student from Zambia as a language assistant. And I was sort of, initially I was wondering whether should I have somebody who, it was a funded project, so I was wondering whether I should have somebody from the UK or not. And I thought actually it would be nice to go with somebody who speaks the language um, in that area. So that was that was really very nice. And I feel that really without working with this language assistant from this area who speaks the language, it would have been much more, much more difficult. And also it was it really was was nice and sort of, you know, as usual, sort of trying to sort of avoid the observer's paradox as much as possible, having the two other colleagues who spoke the language as well natively going into different areas in the field was also really was really very useful. And I think it was it was also nice to to sort of work in this sort of you know professional way with colleagues, you know, at, at the university at the University of Zambia. So that was really, really very nice. And then I guess also working a bit collaboratively with people in the community themselves. In a way, most of my work, like the stuff on intonation and phonology, is very much a little bit of one-to-one with different people. Um, but usually, I mean, usually when I'm in a place, like a couple of times I've sort of say, stayed in a sort of like church center where there's always people that would come on a Sunday, you know, because there's some activities going on. And there I would meet, you know, different people and then try to sort of work with them. And and also, of course, at, at some point, people just sort of start bringing people to you to sort of say, oh, there's this, this person who's here and they're working on their language. And, and I, for me, all of those things are part of working collaboratively. Mm-hmm. So they may not be collecting data, which would be nice if they would be collecting data. And I think that's something that, for me, it would be nice to do a little bit more of. But just in terms of people knowing that you're there and talking to you about things and, you know, signposting to you and asking different people to talk to you, I, I thought that's really... That's, 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 that's really very interesting. Um, in a new project I've got going uh, with colleagues at, um, at Essex at the moment, where we're looking at multilingualism in language and education policies, there we're working very closely with teachers and, um, and uh, community, uh, the community to sort of have sort of focus groups and discussions of issues to do with how do they feel that their language is represented in the education teaching policy 
to try and see whether the multilingualism that you see in society is also being brought into into the classrooms. So there we are having many more discussions in terms of talking to people, you know, in groups to sort of say, you know, what what do you think about this? What's your your opinion? Because it's a bit more qualitative research. Mm-hmm. So that that's a bit more collaborating with the with the community, at least in the sort of work that I've done. Um, so far. Yeah, I think that actually ties in really nicely to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is um, what can we, what are your thoughts on what more we can do to decolonize linguistics and more broadly academia? So, I mean, starting yeah. with collaboration with local colleagues. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Can... Yeah, I think I think that that for me is really, it's a it's a key thing that, you know, one should Maybe we should really, I, I don't know if anybody is doing this anymore, but essentially working more with the communities and sort of not just sort of zooming in and out of mm-hmm. of communities to sort of have your questioned yeah. answers, but to, to have, you know, local experts, so to speak, being part of uh, being part of the research. And the other thing, again, is also maybe that I, I feel that it would be nice if the local linguists would be part of setting the agendas. I, I think they've got issues that they would like to work on, yeah. and it would be nice that we are fitting more into their project because of the into their projects because at the moment it seems much more that you know you come up with a project that you just sort of think of here you know and then think oh who who can i collaborate with on this question that i want to ask about the intonation you know in bemba or about the past tense or something um and in a way it would be nice if it could also sort of be the other way around they have got things that their students in their classes are talking to them about that they would like to find out about and that the collaboration should be that they get a chance to explore those questions and see where it leads because it just might be different questions so to sort of change change the the research agenda setting to also be set from the local context um um as well and i th- i think that really means that they the local people are at the center of um discussions they are at the center of deciding oh, what are we going to do and it's true maybe our role could also be Yes, providing support and and you know discussion on what are the best ways in which we could do things because we've got we may have you know a bit of experience in doing that. But in terms of the actual questions themselves, it's kind of would be really interesting to sort of have that coming more out of the areas themselves because they are local experts whose expertise it would be nice to see, you know, being exploited a little bit more. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. A sort of like. Uh, you know, a pitch for sort of using of local languages when one does field work mm. that, you know, maybe one could make more of an effort of using the local language in the place where you're working or otherwise finding means in which, you know, you you sort of work through others who would be using that language. But I think a bit of an effort in terms of knowing some of the local, local language and culture and system and taking part in it is kind of... Um, would seem just a little bit more embracing of the situation that you that you kind of find. I think obviously, you know, we all can't speak multiple languages and stuff, but it just really seems as if if you focus on a particular area of of research that you would try to conduct some of your research within within the local languages and yeah, I mean, see how people feel about these things, but again, it's empowering people that the knowledge that you're getting can also be represented in a way that is meaningful to them, which might mean in a local language rather than mm-hmm. Um, just you know, a journal article um, which is you know produced somewhere in, and in, in a in a um, in not in an accessible manner. I think it's in a way it's, it is also I guess goes back to the, what we were discussing about maybe what the focus of of the research should be, like how much you should include. So you've got your research question, and how much else should you include, mm-hmm. and that else maybe is a really important part in 
decolonizing kind of what you're doing yeah. to sort of make it also relevant for the community that you're sort of working with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We had one linguist, um, Alex Garcia, and he did he spoke about doing monolingual field work in the Philippines. Uh-huh. So he he um, turned up to the Philippines and he didn't speak. He works on Alta, Northern Alta. He didn't speak Northern yeah. Alta, but he decided. Um, for him, the best way to do it was he's, we was going to do all his field work in Northern Alta. So he learned uh-huh. Northern Alta yeah. and then oh, just did brilliant. monolingual field work. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is yeah. like definitely something that more people could at least try to do. Try exactly. Yeah. 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 No, 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 no. It's really true. And I can imagine that it also brings, you know, certain insights because also at the end of the day, it's also about relationships that you make with people. Mm-hmm. And that they they feel you know it's this trust and feeling that you you're making an effort to be sort of one of us. I think you also get you know data which is you know slightly different. It's not going to be somebody's not trying to think in a different way because they're just going to give you you know the language as they as they would speak and not trying to change anything for your benefit, so to speak. Yeah, like not not everything is going through translation, and then yeah, what you actually get at the end is is it might be slightly modified. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what advice would you give to someone who wants to do field work working with speakers of Bantu languages? You know, there's so much experience of people who are working on Bantu languages, so it means that there's just loads of colleagues who one can talk to. So I think my advice would be just just go for it and 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 kind of do it because I mean people are very very friendly. So one of the things that I was very very wary of actually, and and I think sometimes local colleagues have that is just you wonder. Are people going to take you seriously um, because you're sort of, you know, you're, you know, a local person or are they going to change and move into this? I need to do research about this thing. And even when I went particularly in the area where um, Lozi was spoken. So Bemba is a language which is quite a dominant language in terms of the languages that are spoken in Zambia. There are many, you know, it's multilingual in Zambia, but in, in Western provinces, it's an area where mainly Lozi is spoken. And I went there and my Lozi wasn't very good. I could just sort of speak a little bit. So, of course, I was very conscious of this fact. And I was very, very concerned that um, I would get some negative treatment because of that, um, that I wasn't sort of like, and, and of course, you know, it's a little bit, Bemba in, you know, on some level is a little bit like speaking English where people sort of say that you don't make any effort to learn any other languages because your language is big and it's dominant. So I went there really very, very concerned about whether, how are people going to take me? Is this going to be like a nice, nice, nice experience? And it's good that I had the sort of assistant with me, but people were extremely, extremely friendly and people are sort of really very, very, very happy to help. So that's really is, is something which I would say for anybody who wants to sort of do research, essentially, you're always pleasantly surprised. People are sort of happy to have an opportunity to talk about things that matter to them. And also, if you have got a bit of time to to sort of learn about other people and their cultures, then it will always be a really, really enriching experience. And also, there is always something to be found. Um, a lot of work has been, yes, done on, on sort of Bantu languages, but there are so many about which we know nothing, and there are a number of them which are really getting endangered. This The language I was working on in Western province was an endangered language. Um, with, with sort of very few speakers. So even though we know a lot about Bantu languages and there are many which are sort of alive and kicking, there's loads that we, we don't know about. There's loads, that, like we talked about with respect to dialectology as well. Um, there's still loads to do. So it means there's there's just much more, uh, lots of stuff to find out. So then I would say, yeah, just go for it, do it, because there's lots of exciting things to to find out. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. That's so nice. Okay, well, thank you so much, Nancy. I can't say enough how much I am grateful that you could make time for this today. 
Where can our listeners learn more about the work that you're doing and like find you online if they're interested in reading some of your articles or looking into your research? Okay, excellent. So my Twitter handle is at uh, Nancy C. Kula. And if you would like to read some of my papers, they are online at Academia Edu and also at, um, at ResearchGate. And one of the other projects that I was talking about that I'm working on, on, you know, multilingualism in languages, we also have a nice, uh, uh, very active, more active uh, Twitter account, which is at bringing uh, underscore in. So loads of information there to find out and uh, see kind of latest work that we are, we are doing. Awesome. Okay. And I'll link everything in the show notes so people can just click over. Yes. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me. It was really, really a great, great pleasure. I'm really, really enjoying your podcast. Uh, um, and looking forward to sort of hearing more from the different linguists. Oh, thank you so much. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening.